Well, my freshman year of college, I spent the night of New Year's Eve debating with an atheist and a Mormon. And it was fascinating because at times uh, the Mormon and the atheist were teamed up on me. Uh, there, were, there were moments when the atheist, or the, me and the atheist were sort of critiquing the Mormon. So it moved around, and, and like, it was an interesting conversation. I don't remember much of it, but one, one thing I remember... And I've, t- I've told this story before, but it's, I want to. Uh, this is where we need to start this morning. Um, but there's a moment with the atheist where I was like, "Dude, if you, you're going to die, and then like everything you do goes away, like it's, your life is meaningless, right? Like, everyone you love dies. There's no point. Like you know, wh- wh- what do you do with that? You die, and then you're forgotten." And here, his was this was his answer. I've never forgotten this. He said, "No, I have a, like I have a really rich purpose in life, and my my whole reason for li- living is that after I get my PhD." I'm going to write a book on medieval history, and that book will have my name on it, and it will exist in libraries long after I'm dead. And I remember thinking, that what a, what a ridiculous answer. <laughs> right? Like, at least, like, write something interesting, not medieval history. Like, that, I mean, if you ever read medieval history, this is not a fascinating subject. Um, and, and yet, like, I don't think his answer is ridiculous anymore because now I see, like, I was doing the same thing. That we both had the same life philosophy. He was just honest about it. I just didn't see it yet. And our, our life philosophy was this. Let us make a name for ourselves. At Genesis 11, this Tower of Babel story, it, it seems silly. Like there was actually one of the pastors at another campus that says, like, if you were to make up a story about why we have different languages, like this, is, this feels like what would happen is you would make up the story. Um, so it seems kind of weird and strange on its face and yet, uh, and yet I would say, um, we're, we are doing today what they were doing then. And actually, like, if you listen, if you read the story for what it's trying to say, it's actually, it has a lot of pretty profound things to say to our own cultural moment, particularly the culture you and I that we live in. There's actually something really rich here. And so as I was meditating and reflecting on this text this week, um, I felt like I needed just to confess some things to God. And I think you probably need to make the same confession. So that's actually how I want to work through this text. Is I think there's, you read this text and we're, we're probably moved to make four confessions. And that's how I want to work through the, the text with you. And confession one, this is where I started, my friend Medieval History. First confession this text says you have to make before God is, is this, is I am trying to make a name for myself. This is such a weird text for us because like, we wonder, like, what's so wrong about building a tower, building a city? Because if you drive 15 minutes to the north uh, east of here, like that Kansas City is a city with towers. And uh, like, what's, what's God's beef with building um, towers? And, and that, the problem isn't, it's not about a tower, it's not about a city, it's about something else. And, and the key to understanding like, what's wrong here is in verse 4 of chapter 11, when they, they, they gather together and they, you know, they lay out their, their city mission statement, and here's what it is. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, I want to work, uh, work backwards um, here in terms of what, what they're doing, because they're, they're really saying two things that they want to do that God has a problem with. And this, the last thing they say is we don't want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And this, like, this seems like, why does this matter? Well, it matters. Genesis 1 and 2, God several times 
says to human beings, I want you to be fruitful, I want you to, be, I want you to multiply, and I want you to fill the earth. It's a crucial command in the early chapters of Genesis. Is God wants human beings to multiply, be fruitful, and to fill the whole earth. It's so important that God actually repeats that command to Noah in Genesis 9, verse 1. After the flood, God says to Noah, uh, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, be mul- uh, multiply, and fill the earth. And so when these people gather together to build a city to say, We don't want to be filled uh, throughout the earth. We don't want to be dispersed all over the earth. What they're, what they're doing is saying that thing that God told us to do, let's not do that. Let's do the opposite of it. And, and the question, why? And the answer is they want to build a fortress. They want to, like, it's, it's dangerous to be filled out in all of the earth, especially now post-fall. The world's a dangerous place, right? We in Kansas, the early pioneers, if you played the, the video or the old Mac game, uh, Oregon Trail, right? It's hard to get across to Oregon. All kinds of bad things can, can happen to you. And so rather than, than live into the life God had called them to, to be and do, which is fill the earth, they wanted to build their own place of safety and security and fly in the face of a command of God. And so one commentator said the Tower of Babel story is this. It's man's futile attempt to gain security apart from God through city building. So just tuck that away. This is their attempt to build security and safety apart from God. That's the first problem God has with what they're doing. The second is a little bit more obvious, and that's when they say, right, let us make a name for ourselves. Because that just sounds kind of prideful and arrogant. And in particular, in the Hebrew Bible, a tower is almost always built to, as a sign of pride, arrogance, I don't need God. Right? Which is why it's not just a tower, it's a tower with its top in the heavens. And the image is, well, God's throne is in the heavens, but we don't need him, so we'll build, we'll build our own throne there. Right? We'll build our own throne in the heavens that we'll rule from, so we don't have to obey God. And so, what they're trying to do here in Babylon is they're trying to build a paradise, a utopia, an Eden without God, where they can have a safe place of security and pleasure without all of the difficulties that comes with trying to do life with God. And I think our culture today is trying to do the exact same thing. You and I live in a city, in a culture that's trying to build a utopia, an Eden, without God. Now, we live in an interesting time. Right? So, you know, we live in a time when Christianity is, is increasingly not, uh, not just not uh, attended by a number of people, or like most people are starting to go away from church, um, but also like there's a hostility towards Christianity in particular. But what's weird about this is we still live in a society that's deeply, like the roots are still Christian, in that, you know, the idea of something like human rights, that all human beings have dignity and value, like that's a Christian idea. The world did not think that until Christianity came along. An idea like justice or care for all of the poor, not just those within your own family. Our, our culture still believes in those things, like human rights and justice, care for the poor, the human dignity of all. Everyone, like that's, our culture shares those ideas, and yet, yet at the same time are rejecting the one who gave us those ideas, Jesus. Uh, that a pastor uh, named Mark Sayers, who I've, I, I find really interesting, uh, is a podcast called This Cultural Moment. He says that today in the Western world, we want the kingdom of God, but without the king. We want to build ourselves a place of safety and security, utopia, but we don't want a God. 
And so what's interesting about that is, is Sayers would say, and I, I grew up in the church that, you know, sort of the church tradition stream that would say, once you start rejecting God, things are going to get really awful, right? And there's going to be more crime and there's going to be, you know, things are going to get worse and more violence. But that's actually not what's happening. What's actually happening um, is we're becoming safer, where our streets are, are getting cleaner, our cities are more pristine. Um, and it's why Mark Sayers said that, you know, the future of Christianity, is, the future of the West is not so much Armageddon uh, as it is like the German city Bonn, this clean, you know, be- the best coffee you can get, streetcars, right? Like good tr- public transport. It's all great and there's no God. And I, like, I think we're, we're trying to do that. I mean, look at Kansas City. We have the best coffee in, that you could have in, like, anywhere. We have a free streetcar. At least I think it's still free. I haven't been on it in a while. Um, like, it's clean. It's great. Like, look at the, there's new construction everywhere. And, and we're all doing it without God. And so we live, Genesis, this is, this, this is the city we live in, which is why I don't, you know, thumb my nose at Genesis 11. We live in a place that's saying, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build us a place of safety and security without God. And this, this reality, the culture you and I live in, if you're a Christian, presents us with sort of two unique challenges. That we're sort of living in, in very much new times um, in that we have, we have two unique temptations. And the first temptation is, is for you and I as Christians to be colonized by the city in which we live that's trying to make a name for themselves. So, so here, here's what's interesting. And Mark, Mark Sayers, this pastor, he, he lays this out that, that there's sort of three types of culture, if, if you're aware of Christianity. First culture is what the early church was born into. So it was Rome before there was any Christianity. And so what happened was the church went into Rome, and, and the Romans over time were captured by the Christian ideas of, of the dignity of all human beings, of humility and service, which was, were not Roman values. The idea of care for the poor. And so you read Romans beginning to see the, the, the church, and they're amazed at these things. Look at the Christians care for the poor. They care for our poor, not just their own. You see, the, the, uh, Rodney Stark, who wrote The Rise of Christianity, said probably the primary reason Christianity exploded in the West was because when the plagues hit Rome, everyone left the city except for the Christians who stayed behind to care for the sick and care for the dying, oftentimes at you know, risk to their own life, many of them dying because they did this. And the Roman world was so struck by the generosity, the humility, the care of the vulnerable that the church had that, that people became Christians at enormous rates. And so that, that's what, you know, the first culture, there's no exposure to God or Christianity, and you see the gospel, and you're like, this is beautiful, I want this. But you, we live in a culture that was largely uh, what Sayers would refer to as a second culture, which is a culture that largely accepted Christianity as a good thing. And whether you're a Christian or not, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, in, in this culture, like Christianity was, church was a good thing. You should, you should go to church. It's, it's, a, it's a value. It's, it's a good part of society. But we live in a day today, which uh, Sayers refers to as a third culture, which is everyone in our, our surrounding world knows about Christianity, Right? No one really, you know, go down your street and ask, do you know who Jesus is? Everyone's probably going to say yes. And yet, our culture is beginning to actively reject that Christianity, that faith. While at the same time, trying to hold on to the core message Christianity has of humility and, and justice and the human dignity of all life. And so we're in this unique time where on the one hand, uh, Christianity is decreasing in influence, and yet we st- the roots of our society still are deeply, deeply Christian. And it's why now, at my age of, of 35, I'll turn 36 in a couple of weeks, I've seen a lot of my friends reject Christianity, stop going to church, stop believing in Jesus, 
and yet maintain some of the teachings of Jesus. Right? Like, and post with passion about, you know, the poor, about justice, about human dignity. And even though those realities, those, those teachings don't make sense apart from a king and a God and Jesus, our society's holding on to the kingdom of God, the, the teachings of Jesus, while rejecting Jesus at the same time. And so our challenge, like your challenge as Christians today, is to not be colonized by those ideas, not to be tempted to give up on Jesus, but, but keep his teachings. Right? To believe in human rights, but not actually submit yourself to Jesus as king and God. That The challenge we face is, is to not just accept the parts of the teachings of Jesus that we like, that resonate with us, but to actually accept him as king and God over our lives. And that's, a new, that's never before been true, right? Like this is new time for us as we live in a time when Christianity still has deep roots here and yet is sort of actively pushed against and in our cultural centers today seen as, as maybe not just wrong, but actually a harmful thing. So one temptation, right, is, is to want the kingdom of God without a king. The other temptation, and this is the, this is the one probably, we, you know, is a little bit easier to sell, is the temptation of, of living for myself, Right, we live in a city that says, let us make a name for ourselves. And, and so 1,800 years ago, there was an early Christian named Augustine who saw this happening in his own city, in his own time. And, and that's why he wrote one of the most influential books in the history of the world called City of God. It's like 900 pages long, but you don't have to read 900 pages. I'll give it to you in a sentence. This is the whole book in a sentence. Augustine writes, we see then that the two cities, so there's two cities, the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching to the point of contempt for God. But the heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt for self. So what Augustine is saying there is that within every city, there are two cities. There's the city of man and the city of God. We'll talk about the city of God in a second. But the city of man, and what the city of man is built on, is love for self. Let us make a name for ourselves. It's a city built on hubris and pride, self-love. And that, the city in which we live encourages us in, that, in so many different directions to put ourselves at the center of the universe. A while back, I was with a, a gathering of, of, a, of a bunch of different people. And, and during, uh, during that gathering, someone got up to speak. And when they got up to speak, uh, they took an idea that was mine that I had told them, and they, they claimed it as their own. So it was my idea, but they said, you know, I've been thinking about this is my idea. And, and I was sitting there listening to it, and it really bothered me. As it should have, right? That's the wrong thing to do. But it, like, bothered me beyond what, uh, what it should have. Because let's be honest. Like, this was not like I had come up with a cure of cancer, and this is what they're sharing in passing. It's not that. It's a, it's a completely pointless thing that's not that important. And yet, like, my desire to be recognized, to, be, to, be the, to have the attention on me, to, to be front and center, like that was so, it was so strong. I lost sleep over that. And every one of us, that's true of us. Because we live in a city with rhythms and patterns that's saying, make a name for yourself. Right? You're, you're the most important. Like, li- like be true to yourself. Live for yourself. Make a name for yourself. That's the, that's the rhythm and pattern of our city. And so this morning, like where, where are you trying to make a name for yourself? 
It's why I don't look back on my atheist friend and his medieval history life philosophy is like completely ridiculous anymore because it's like for me, it's just something else. But it's still, I want my name on something. I want to be seen. I want to be recognized. I want to be important. And when you put a whole city of people together doing that, it's really problematic. <laughs> so that's confession one. I am trying to make a name for myself. I'm trying to live at the center of my own universe. Where are you doing that? That's confession one. Confession two is, is this. Uh, it's a little harder to speak, but it's honest. Two, that the name uh, that I am trying to make for myself is not impressive. All right, so God responds. Uh, I love this is a lot of humor, uh, which maybe doesn't come through in the Hebrew. So they're like, we're going to build a tower with the top in the heavens. And this is how God responds. Uh, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. So he, they're going to build a, to- a, a tower in the top of the heavens. And God's like, what's, is there something going on down there? Like, he has to go down just to see the tower that's down there, which is just totally mocking what they're, the project they're a part of. Because the, like the best names that you and I can create for ourselves, the best accomplishments we can do in this life, ultimately are nothing compared to the creator God of the universe. That's why, again, this isn't a silly story. This is actually really profound. That everything you think you need to do to make a name for yourself, everything you think you need to do to be valuable, worthwhile, impressive to the people around you, whether it's your work and vocation, your parenting, the amount of money you have, your physical appearance, whatever those things are that you think will get, get you attention and a name for yourself, if you, even if you accomplish it, it's not impressive to God. But even worse, uh, you know, there's sort of two things you can do, right? One is you, you don't accomplish it and you feel... Like completely, like I'm not good enough, right? Shame. Or you can accomplish it and find that this, this project you've been embarked on is completely meaningless. Which is why like so many of the most, like people who have the roughest lives are some of our most successful people, like in, in Hollywood. And so I've showed this clip before, but there was this moment at the 2016 Golden Globes with Jim Carrey that I think just perfectly illustrates this. So, so take a look. sleep at night. I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this this terrible search. For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. (laughs) Yeah, like I, so Jim Carrey, like he's made it, right? Tons of money, fame, award-winning actor, and he just, like, this is all meaningless. 
And I can just about promise you that any of us in this room probably will not accomplish the name that he made for himself. Um, And yet, uh, have we bought it? Do we understand that what he understands, which is that this pursuit of making a name for ourselves, it's meaningless. You will not build yourself a tower in the top of the heavens. Even if you make a name for yourself, it's not impressive. Got us to come down. Like, what's going on down there? Like, what are you doing? He has to come down just to see it. And it's why God says, uh, this is enough of what you're doing. And the next part, like, it's weird, right? He, he comes down and like, okay, you're all speaking the same language. I'm going to confuse your languages. Um, and, and there's a rabbit trail you can go down to kind of understand what's happening there. Just, just really briefly, uh, what, what's happening is that the, like, when human beings gather, uh, think of it this, like one human being can do a good amount of evil. But if you get together a bunch of human beings who speak the same language, have the same culture, build themselves a city... They can do a lot of evil, right? It's like one plus one, one human plus one human doesn't equal two in the terms of evil. It's like it's a multiplying effect. And it's like you look through human history and the most evil that's been done has been done not by a single person, but by a group of people gathered together. And it's it's why God stops them here and says, I'm not going to let you, you're not going to do this and scatters them over the face of the earth. And it's why also in the rest of the Bible's story, uh, this city, Babel, which later becomes Babylon, becomes for the Bible sort of like the, the image for communal and uh, like collective evil and rebellion against God. That's why in the, the book of Revelation, Babylon is, is featured prominently. It's the city of man. It's the evil city built on love of self at the expense of love of God. But it's... That would be a depressing storyline if that's the only one. But the Bible also it then creates another city, an alternative city. And it's why Augustine wrote the city of God, is that what he found, what he saw, was that, yes, you have Babel, the city of man. Let, let us make a name for ourselves, run through the whole storyline of Scripture. But God is going to create an alternative city, an alternative place. And if you fast forward all the way to Acts 2, that's God's answer ultimately to this Babel story in Genesis 11. So here's what's happening in Acts 2, keeping Genesis 11 in the back of our minds. So now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So everyone dispersed all over the earth has come to Jerusalem. And And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them, the disciples, preaching the gospel, speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And commentators point out, Acts 2 is the undoing of Babel. Instead of God confusing language and dispersing people all over the world, instead he's gathering people from all over the world to hear the gospel in their own language, to hear that God loves them and cares for them and wants to know them in their own language, which is the the creation now of an alternative city. That's why in, in Revelation you have the New Jerusalem and you have Babylon. You have the city of God, the city of man. And it's why Augustine says within every city there are two cities. There's the city of man, love of self, and the city of God, the church, the kingdom of God at work for love of God. Right? That now within every city there is a, a church community of people not, built not on love of self but on love of of God, a people who are, are not trying to make a name for ourselves, but are trying to live out a love for God. And that's why I love the way Peter Lightheart, a, a theologian, he says this about the church. He says, as soon as the church appears, it becomes clear to any politician that worldly politics is no longer the only game in town. 
The introduction of the church into any city means that the city has a challenger within its walls. We are challengers within the walls of our own city. Our politics should be different. Our parenting should be different. The way we approach our work and vocation should be different. The way we we interact in our neighborhood should be different. Our rhythms of rest and Sabbath should be different. And so the question for us, church, is are they? Are we Christians actually living as an alternative within our city? Is our way of life actually a challenge, a confrontation to the city of man? Or have we adopted the city of man, love of self, let us make a name for ourselves, and brought it into the church. That's the question that keeps me up at night. That are, are we, a church, are we actually the city of God, a challenger within our walls, or is the city shaping us, city of man shaping us into love of self, into a self-centered way of being? That what we want to be as a church, we want to provide an alternate life and way of parenting, Right? In a city that idolizes kids and places unrealistic expectations and futures on them, what would a way of Jesus' parenting look like? Built not on teaching our kids. Make a name for yourself, but love, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and, and strength. I told this before, but I had people, when I, when I told people within my church that I grew up in that I wanted to be a pastor, they said, you shouldn't do that because you won't make much money. Like Christians told me that. We want to provide as a church an alternate way of, of work and vocation. Right? That your work life, the way you speak to people on a Monday, the way that you go about your work should be fundamentally different than the, the people at your workplace who are not Christians, who don't, have not entered into the way of Jesus. As a church, we should have different rhythms when it comes to rest and vacation and work and Sabbath. We don't have to work to earn our salvation before God. We're not trying to build a tower for ourselves. We can Sabbath. We can rest because God rests. And so as a church, like we're meant to be an alternative, a city with, uh, on a hill, as Jesus said. And I want to say like, the best way for us to become that, for you and your individual life to become an alternative, a challenger within the city, is that you need to be meaningfully, regularly connected to a community of Jesus followers, to a church. Following Jesus can only be done in in community, and that's, that's where Confession 3 comes in. So Confession 1 is, I'm trying to make a name for myself. Confession 2 is, n- no one's impressed. At least not, certainly not God. And thirdly is, I need a community to live for God, not for myself. Right, that ultimately, the answer to Babel, right? Genesis 11, there's only judgment. You don't get the answer to Babel until Acts 2, which is the creation of a new church community, a new city, and that means, like, life with Jesus cannot be done on your own. It's not enough for you to read your Bible on your own. You need to do that in community. Because after all, we can read into the Bible whatever we want. And if we just ignore 2,000 years of church history, if we ignore a surrounding group of people who are helping us, we can, we can make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. And we will. I will. You will. Which is why you need to do it in community, right? And, and not, just, not just this community, but but. But church history is one of the reasons why uh, I like our model of church is that each week on a Monday, tomorrow, we'll look ahead at the next text and we will do that. We will read the text in community so that we preach the Bible and not our own thing. And, and it needs to be true of all of us, not just a private devotional reading of your Bible. It needs to be read in 
community. It's not just enough for you to podcast sermons. Right? You need to come and hear the sermon in community. Listen to the word preached sitting next to your friend, next to your spouse, who may want to say something to you at lunch later today after they hear the sermon. They, the, a thought comes to mind of something maybe you did. When as you listen to a sermon by yourself, you get to decide, what do I apply, what do I not? I'll just, I'll, I'll, it's my own thing. It's my own spirituality. And it's not just like the, the confrontational aspect of community or the, the, right, the, the part of accountability within a community, but it's also you need a community of people to be encouraged, to be prayed over, to have truth spoken over you, grace spoken over you. And I say this because I know I need all of these things. Without them, I will always be tempted to go off in my own direction, to live for myself, to make a name for myself, to build a name for myself, and to not build my life on submission to the King, to God, His Word, His Son, Jesus Christ. As a church community, like that is what we're, that's what we are about here. And one of the things that Andrew and I have talked a lot about over the last few months, thinking about new building ahead and, and just where, you know, where we're headed in terms of a church, this is, this is the question I've really wrestled with, which is, are we actually forming you into the way of Jesus? Are we an alternative within our own city? And I just like, we need to do better with that. Like as pastors, we need to lead better here. That, that, like, we have more work to do. And yet the question I would ask that I think is true in this context, in the U.S. context, is are we, yes, pastors, we need to lead better here, but are we as a church willing to do the work to become alternative, devoted disciples of Jesus? Because you will not become a person who is a, a love of God at the expense of love of self person without enormous work and time and community and study and prayer in, in fellowship, right? Like that you, it just will not happen. And are we willing to put in that, that work, that time? To change a life from my own life, our lives from let us make a name for ourselves to let me love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and let me love my neighbor as myself. That, that change does not happen by accident. It takes an incredible amount of time and repentance and teaching and study and, and listening to others around you, having, having them speak into your life. That's, that's what keeps me up at night. Is are we an alternative to our own city? And that I need a community, right? It's not just, it's, this is not me preaching at you. This is in community. We need community in order to become a people who lo- live for God and not, and not self. So that's confession three. Confession four, and finally, um, there's an incredible promise at the heart of this text, which is, I will receive a better name. Uh, that one of my favorite moments in the life of Jesus is uh, it's in Luke chapter 10. He sends out 72 disciples to sort of do like, it's like the initial work of Jesus. It's like the first, like the first bit of church planting, like the first bit of Jesus going out and, and sending his message out into the world. It's, it, this is it. This is it happening right here. And, and they have a ton of success. They drive out demons. People are connected to Jesus' teachings. It's like they go out and they just have enormous success. And when they all gather back, to, you know, with Jesus, they're like, this was awesome. Like, this was great. We had so much success. Like, there's so, like the, the kingdom of God went forward. It was incredible. And Jesus, in response to, to their excitement, he says something really stunning. And this is what he, he says this. He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Don't. I don't care about your worldly success. I don't care about all the people who responded to the message. That's not, that's not what we're doing here. It's great, right? Good, that's awesome. But don't rejoice at that. Rejoice at this, that your names are written in heaven. 
Rejoice at the fact that I, Jesus, Son of God, know your name. I know you personally. And I've written that name in heaven. I mean, what a stunning statement. I don't care about the name you're making for yourself. I don't care about the success that you had. I'm not interested in you for your success. I'm interested in you for you, your name. It's written in heaven. And it's why in Revelation 22, the scene depicted at us meeting God, meeting Jesus for the first time, is that when we see him face to face, we will see our name written on his forehead. It's like you have two choices in life. I will make a name for myself, right? That's choice one. And it's exhausting, right? Ultimately, you'll never make it. You'll always feel inadequate. You're not doing enough. You're failing your kids. You're failing your work. You're, you're not doing it. You're not making the name you should have made for yourself, right? Or you get there and it's meaningless. And if you follow Jim Carrey, his life is a wreck. I mean, he's, he's, he's a weird guy, right? It's, you, it's either it's you don't do it or you encounter the meaninglessness and your life falls apart. Or you, it can be given to you as a gift, right? That's the tragedy of our condition is we spend so much time trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to succeed, and we never get there. And so we're always looking in the, in the mirror. I'm not enough, or this is meaningless. This isn't what I thought it, we, it would be. Or we can do that, or we can stop. We can come to Jesus, who rejoices us with us over our successes, right? It's not that success doesn't matter. It's not that accomplishment doesn't matter. It's Jesus. It does. But that's not why he's, he's not interested in you for that. He rejoices over things with us, but he's not interested in us for that. He, he rejoices over our successes, but he also forgives our failures. And then he looks, at the eye, looks us in the eyes and says, that's not what matters. What matters is this, is I have given you a name, and it's kept for you in heaven. Let's pray. Fathers, I, I come and confess like the many ways that I try to make a name for myself. I just pray, like as a church, we would just collectively put that work down this morning and come to you in worship and communion and response and hear the words of Jesus. Don't rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. For those of us in Jesus, God, like, help us rejoice in that, in that alone. And if, if, we're, if there's anyone here who's not in the way of Jesus, would they hear that promise that they can lay down the hard work of trying to make a name, trying to, to carve out your own path forward in life and see that everything we ever could hope for in life has already been offered to us in Jesus. Help us see that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.